And this is not just a literary discussion. I'm not just, I'm not just talking about literature when I talk about patterns. But there are patterns in, in Scripture that are uh, unfolded and developed as Scripture goes on. And then, as those patterns are unfolded, they are heightened and intensified and clarified as the scriptures move from the law to the prophets, um, ultimately being fulfilled in Christ. And the more and more I look at Genesis, the more I'm seeing how archetypal this book is. That means uh, it is setting forth patterns. Um, setting forth patterns so that Christ, when he comes, can actually say that you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is they that bear witness about me. That his, his truth is stitched into the fabric of the Old Testament. It's not just a surprise when Christ comes on the scene, although it probably was a surprise to many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but he did say, he did chasten Nicodemus, I think it was. He said, are you a teacher of Israel and you, didn't, you don't know about these things? So a careful study of the Old Testament scriptures, what we're doing is we're seeing the, the tapestry, the patterns set forth, that crescendo at the Lagos, the word. Christ. So let's read um, Genesis 20, Genesis 25, and we'll, we'll read through um, we'll read through verse 23, Genesis 25, 1 through 23. Now last week we saw, we saw an archetypal pattern. We saw a father commissioning a servant. And that servant going and getting a bride for a son. Therein lies the Great Commission. <laughs> that, that's, an, that's a pattern that is, that is developed throughout Scripture and heightened with the Great Commission. So today I want to look at other patterns that are being developed in Genesis. Starting at verse 1. We read that Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimrah, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim, Latushim, and Lemumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. And all these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. 
There Abraham was buried with Sarah his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Agar, Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth, Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Milshva, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jitar, Nafesh, and Kadama. These are the sons of Ishmael as, as their names, by their villages, by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was, was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havala to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together with, within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Again, I want to just talk about the archetypes that we find in the Old Testament. Think about the very beginning. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Something has to come in to that arena to bring order and life. And that power that brings order and life to a dark and void arena is called the Word of God. God speaks and order in life begins to take place in the universe, the unformed and unfilled universe. And Adam falls, we know, and, and the Lord then brings the world back to a state of chaos, of being unformed and unfilled in Genesis six through nine when with the flood and then what you have is really a unit a world back in a state that is formless and void darkness over the face of the deep he he uncreates creation and when when a a person comes to a saving knowledge of christ he is formless and void and darkness lies over the face of his heart. He is un, there, there's disorder there to his life. He is unshaped, misaligned. But when God 
comes into a person's life, he comes into that person's life with the Word. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word of God is Christ, the Lagos. And Paul talks about the Lagos as the one by whom God created the world. Christ is the one by whom God created the world. Now I just present that before you to show the, the pattern of the word coming into arenas that are dark and formless and void and bringing life and light. That's an archetypal pattern we see throughout scripture. Now in Genesis... But really, Genesis is a book about a chosen lineage. We're, we're tracing a lineage throughout the book of Genesis. And we saw that there was a promise seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So it's this, it's this vague, ambiguous promise. But then it's sharpened with the seed of Abraham, whom God promises that through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So really, the covenant with Abraham is God looking to restore creation through a single family. Now in this passage, Abraham dies, and I want you to notice that, this, that the chosen line does not continue with all of Abraham's children. Here's the pattern. Here's the archetype. It does not continue through all of Abraham's children, but specifically with Isaac. And then when Isaac has sons, the chosen line continues not with Esau, but specifically with Jacob. So there is a choosing. The theological word for this is an election. Um, and I want you to see as we as this passage unfolds how Christ is stitched into this passage. And I want to do it in three movements. I'd like to talk about election, barrenness, and reversal as the stitchings that weave the, that covenant tapestry that you see fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Oh, there's, there is so much fulfilled in Christ. But election, barrenness, and reversal. Now starting in verse 1, notice that Isaac is the one, Isaac specifically, is the one through whom divine purpose will continue. Um, start in verse 1, Abraham has another wife, Keturah. Now, we read in First Chronicles uh, 131 that Keturah is really a concubine. Um, so maybe there was, there was a, a blending of whether you were a concubine or a wife. Maybe that was kind of, kind of ambiguous or one and the same almost at, at some points. But Keturah is another concubine through whom Abraham has more children. So there's, there's Hagar who bore Ishmael. There's Sarah, who bears Isaac. And then there's Keturah, who bears other children. And we see in verses 2 and 4 that Keturah, this concubine of Abraham, bears Abraham six children and ten grandchildren. 
And in verse 5, does he, does he split the inheritance that he has? Does he, does he equally divide it? No. In verse 5, it says, after listing all these children, there's almost, that all builds up to this point. But he gave, but Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. Everything that he had was given specifically to Isaac and not the other children. To others he gave gifts and he sent them eastward to the east country. Here's another archetypal pattern. When you move east, is that a good thing in Genesis or a bad thing? That's bad news if you're moving east in Genesis. East of Eden... Cain went east from the Tower of Babel. They went east. Eastward is not is the direction of the serpent, usually. And so Isaac gives the inheritance and only... I mean, Isaac gives the inheritance and the land only to Isaac and not to all the other sons. So that you see there's a principle of election beginning to to form in the Old Testament. Now God sees to it that Ishmael too, uh, Hagar's son, is blessed. But the specific blessing, the real covenant blessing, goes to Isaac and not Ishmael. In verse um, 7-10, through Abraham dies. He lives 175 years, he breathes his last, and he is buried in the very cave that he bought, Machpelah, where he buried Sarah, and all the patriarchs are buried in that cave, remember. By the way, that cave of Machpelah, we know where that is today, and there is a mosque over that, in that location today. Um, I don't... They never found bones there, but who knows how deep they are, where they are. If I, but it's, I just find it interesting that we know exactly where this location is. Um, so, Abraham passes away. He is buried in this cave that he purchased. Um, and in verse 11, after Abraham's death, who does God extend the promised covenant to? After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Halori. So God blesses specifically Isaac. So if there's anything that's clear in verses 1 through 11, it's that Abraham has more children. He has Keturah's children from Keturah. There's children from Ab- there's a child from Hagar. But specifically, the one who Abraham gave all he has to. The one who stayed in the land while everyone else is sent east. The one who God blesses in juxtaposition to Ishmael is Isaac. Specifically Isaac. And that's why God told Abraham, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And remember, Abraham does not let... Isaac leave the promised land to get a wife. He sends a servant out of the promised land to get a wife. 
So he won't even le let Isaac leave the promised land, yet he sends the sons away, the other sons away, and gives them gifts. So again, I say if anything is clear in verses 1 through 11, it is that Isaac and only Isaac is the elect son, and that the covenant of Abraham would continue through him specifically, and God's blessings are given to him. So that's why I say, when we think about election, we're thinking about a chosen line, a chosen lineage. There's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. You see that chosen line? That's what, that's what Genesis is about. It is about tracing the blessings of God, the covenant promise of God, through this chosen line. And um, this chosen line, the chosen one, becomes Israel corporately in the Old Testament. Israel becomes the chosen son. But then Israel, because of her constant sin and her constant falling and doing what was right in their own eyes, needs to look to it's almost like the promises of God are funneled back down to a one in the Old Testament so that the prophets speak about a chosen one this is highlight I think this is clear in, in Daniel where the promises everything it's almost like Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac in the prophets, you see about you see talk about a chosen son who all God has is going to be given to him. Daniel seven, three seven seven thirteen through fourteen says, "This is Daniel having a vision about a, a vague and enigmatic figure." He says, "I saw in the night visions." And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples in nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So whereas Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, this son of man is given all God has. To him, people are worshiping this son of man. To him is given an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, that cannot be shaken. All that God has is being given to this strange shadowy figure who is like a human, like a son of man, but not really. Very, very awesome, profound, sufficiently vague, eerily prophetic, yet clear from our perspective. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is there is always a chosen one through whom God's promises are carried along. 
in redemptive history. You see that throughout Genesis. And you see the prophets talking about the chosen one who would be given dominion. That all authority would be given to this person, in other words. Barrenness is another stitching, another thread in this passage. Um, it says in verse 19 that these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old. When he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, the sister of Laban, to be his wife, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. This is a constant refrain in Genesis as well. Barrenness of the wife. Barrenness of the mother of the promised child. Right? Rebecca is barren. Sarah was barren. She was 90 years old, 90-something years old until she had Isaac. Leah, let's just flip with me two pages over to 29 verse 31. Would this continue? Would this pattern continue of barrenness? 29 verse 31, we read that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, this is one of Jacob's wives, God opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So, God opened the womb of Leah to bear a child. And then Rachel, what about Rachel? We read that Rachel is barren, the wife of another promised seed. Rachel, look, look at me, look with me in verse 30, verse 22, or chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived. So you see what's happening here? It's always God bringing life to a barren woman in Genesis. And the Lord grants her prayer, their prayers. So it's always dependence on God and God answering prayer and bringing life where there was no life before. So the barrenness theme shows that in order for the promised line to continue, the elect line to continue, God must bring life to a place where there was not life possible. That's the constant theme that we see not only in Genesis, but throughout Scripture and in today's world too. God must bring life to an arena where life was not possible. And it's only God that can do that. John Salehammer in his commentary says, The fulfillment of the promise is possible at each crucial juncture only because of a specific act of God. So it requires... There is an elect line, but the elect line, in order for it to actually be continued, requires divine intervention. Today... In order for somebody to be saved, to be part of the kingdom of God, to be brought under the direction of God's holiness and power, to be transformed, 
life needs to be brought into that person because there is no life in that person. You are born into the physical world by your parents. But if you're going to be born into the kingdom, you must be born of God. And he will bring life and light and order into your life. So there is a need to be born of God. And if not, you will die. You will continue on the trajectory that you are going unless one reaches out to God and receives the life that only he can give. Just as, just as Isaac prayed to the Lord and the Lord opened Rebekah's womb, so anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will have the life of God within them if they do so truly. Now, I want to read you a quote here from uh, who is really, you know, I was talking to uh, Mark about spiritual fathers. This man has really been a spiritual father to me, um, Dallas Willard. I know you've heard me quote him before. But I think he, he has it right when it comes to people rejecting God. God, God's life and power is available. So it's not as if people fit themselves for damnation by making a mistake. It's they fit themselves for damnation by their rejection of God's life. Dallas Willard says, We should be very sure that the ruined soul is not one who has missed a few or more or less important theological points and will flunk a theological examination at the end of their life. Hell is not an oops or a slip. One does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Outer darkness is for one who everything said wants it, whose entire orientation has slowly set itself against God and therefore against how the universe actually is. Mm. That is that is so true. <laughs> People don't go to hell because they've missed they're going to flunk a theology exam. They go to hell because their entire life is oriented away from God. It's by their constant effort to avoid God. Now, I know half of you are thinking, but what about the people who never heard? I'm not talking about the people who never heard right now. I'm talking to the people who have heard and have rejected God. There's a constant effort to avoid God. Or his revelation. I'm not talking about the people who haven't heard. Or his revelation. Paul says in chapter 1 of Romans that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but their foolish hearts were darkened. Yet God is clearly perceived by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse. So there is a revelation in nature. And God will judge you according to the light you have. All right. So barrenness. Barrenness requires life to be brought into that place. And only God can do that. Divine intervention is required. 
it's almost as if you could think of barrenness as a tomb where God must give life. A grave where God must give life in order for the promised line to continue. The next theme is reversal. Reversal. Um, and what I mean by that will become clear. Verse 22. So the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. In verse 22, the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now it seems in that verse what is happening is Sarah feels a physical manifestation of a spiritual struggle. And, and I think that that's something to note. Don't, don't separate the physical from the spiritual because they, the, the spiritual wants your physical body. Right? The, the evil wants physicality. I've said many times before, sin lusts to express itself in you. Sin wants to use your tongue to spew hate. Right? It wants to achieve an incarnation through your flesh, whereas the Holy Spirit seeks to achieve an incarnation through your flesh. And these two are at war with one another. And you will either become the kind of person who gives in to the flesh or gives in to the Spirit. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, 12-13, that we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, but to the spirit. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But there is a struggle. There's a struggle in Sarah's womb, and she, there's a physical manifestation that she feels because of this struggle. She goes to the Lord to inquire. And the Lord gives an oracle, a prophecy. And the Lord says that there are two nations in your womb. And two people from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. Here is the pattern of God choosing the younger over the older. Younger, older, the older. Who was chosen? Whose, whose sacrifice was accepted? Cain or Abel's? Cain was the older. Abel's was accepted. Seth is the youngest in his line. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael, who was Abraham's firstborn. Joseph, chosen over all his brothers, who was the last. And Judah is the one who will continue his line is the last. So there is this theme of the youngest one continuing the, the line. Now typically, as you probably know, in ancient times, that was not how things happened. It was the firstborn son who would get the inheritance, and the younger would always serve the older. But throughout Genesis, it's the younger one who rises to prominence. So it shows that in the pattern of redemption, the God's course of actions don't 
follow the normal course of culture. There's a uniqueness in God's course of actions where he specifically chooses what is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world and works within that system to redeem the world. If you were a god, what nation would you, what kind of nation would you pick? If you were God, you would probably pick a strong, powerful, numerous nation. But that's not what the Lord did. He says in the prophets to Israel, it's not because you were the strongest Israel that I chose you or that you were most numerous, but I chose you because I loved you and I am keeping the covenant that I kept with your fathers. So there's a reversal in God's election. He doesn't elect the strong who are competent and therefore have no need of God. He elects the weak who are depending, who are dependent, utterly dependent on the Lord. Who is well off? That's what the Beatitudes are about. Who is in a good position? Is it, the, is it the vigorous of spirit? The one who has great confidence? No, it is the poor in spirit. Why is the poor in spirit in a good position? Because he needs what only God can give. And he knows it. The meek shall inherit the earth. Those are the people who can't and so they reach for <laughs> if you can't do it on your own what will you do you will reach for a power that is beyond you that's what you'll do if you cannot make it on your own you will reach for a power that is beyond you that is why these people are in a good position in a happy position I heard one person say, so what is Christianity then? Is it a crutch for the weak? Yes, it is. It is a crutch for the weak. And you will stand. And that's, that's, why, that's why spiritual formation is so important, because God will make you stand. He takes weak people, and he makes them strong. Not because they in themselves have become strong, but because God's power will reside in them. We talked about holiness on um, Wednesday in men's group. And I said holiness, I, I got this from somewhere I'm sure, but holiness is like a light bulb. It has a power, a light, a heat, a force that is in it, but not of it. In it, but not of it. That's what, a, that's what a powerful Christian is. He is filled with a power in him or in her that's not of her. That's not of him. He is filled with the power of God, not his own power. Not by strength, not by power, but by, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So it's always God using the weak things to confound the wise. So, yes, Christianity is a crutch for the weak, and it's also a cross for the strong. It's a place to lay down your perceived abilities, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. I am not suggesting or glorifying incompetence in life. 
But I am suggesting and I am glorifying dependence, utter dependence on God. That's, that is how we will become strong men in women. Utter dependence on the Lord. Reaching for a power that is beyond. If you're going to grow, how do plants grow? By reaching for what is within themselves? No. Plants grow by reaching for what is beyond themselves. They need water. And you know, even Nydia's plants in the house, you know what they do? They bend towards the light. They bend. Even plants know that they need a power that is beyond them in order to sustain their life. So they bend towards the light. That's what spiritual disciplines are. We're going to talk about study, fasting, prayer, meditating on God's word, walking in silence and solitude with the Lord. These things are not ways to become competent. They're ways of bending towards the light, bending towards God, just like a plant bend towards the light. Um, so, yes... Yes, God works through, through foolish things. A younger is the strong. So there's a pattern that is, begins here, is developed and heightened and strengthened with the offer of salvation. It's the one who does not say, thank God I am competent. It's the one who beats his breast and says, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And then, after having received mercy, it's not the one who's now content to live just as sinful as he's always lived, but to run on God's grace. You know who God gives more grace to? Those who use it. That's who gets more grace. Not those who constantly fall back into the same sin. It's those who use it, who burn it up, like, like a car burns fuel. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Um, I struggle with all his might that he powerfully works within me. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is fuel for the Christian life, not just forgiveness. It starts with forgiveness. Right? In order to start your car, you need gas. I've learned that many times. But once you have gas, your car can run. Um... So I want to bring these three themes together for two minutes. What you have is an elect son continuing the promises of God. We also have the theme of divine intervention. God constantly intervening and bringing life to a place where there is no life. And we have God using the weak things in the world to confound the wise, a reversal where the blessed is the poor in spirit or the younger. Now, please see then that Christ is not just, that Christ in the salvation that he offers is not just a tack on to the Old Testament story. It's not like a bunch of stuff happened here and then Christ came and that's now, that's, you know, fulfillment somehow. But see how this is all stitched into and leading up to Christ in a very deep and mysterious way. 
it's almost as if there is one mind behind the whole scripture. That there is one, one source of logic behind the whole scripture weaving this, this pattern that is fulfilled in Christ. Because Christ went into a place, a tomb, where life was not possible. And the continued line could only continue if God, through his divine intervention, brought life to a place where life does not happen. Life doesn't happen in the grave, right? It doesn't happen in a barren womb, but it doesn't happen in the grave, right, Wes? Wes is shaking his head, yes and no. And when you think, I think about that phrase that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Well, God has given all that he has to Christ. The Great Commission doesn't say, first, go, on, go into the whole world and make disciples. Why should we do that? Why make disciples of Jesus Christ? The reason is given before he says go make disciples he says all authority has been given to me and it is on that basis that you go and make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe all I've commanded you so all authority has been given to Christ that is why we make disciples of him Jesus says in John 16 15 all that the father has is mine Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is, the Holy Spirit now brings to you what Christ has and unites you to Christ so that, and get this, so that all the privileges of Christ that God gave Christ now belong to you. That's union with Christ. So that Paul says you're raised up with him seated with him in heavenly places and even use, uses what seems to be the blasphemous language in Romans 8 that you will be glorified with Christ provided you suffer with him. Do you see how Christ is stitched into all of scripture? Do you see how he, these truths are weaved and woven throughout all of scripture? That's why Christ to end on this note, is called the Lagos. The Lagos meant the logic, the reason. It's the ordering principle of God's activity. Christ is the Lagos. He is the ordering principle of God's activity. And, um, and I think we see, again, that Christ isn't just something that's tacked on to the end of a Hebrew Bible, but he and his truth is stitched into it. And we are his people through union with him, united with him, sharing the privileges of him. Thus Paul prays that we would know the hope to which we were called, because it is very great. Let's close in a word of prayer.